opportunity for learning requires a fresh mindset. If you think, I'm stuck in giving up, I know I can't get it right, then get it wrong. Once you make the mistake, you can ask, why is that wrong? Now you're back on track to figuring out the original challenge at hand. Students need to experience the arc of starting with failure and ending with success. Teachers need to embrace the power of failure by consciously inspiring students to learn the productive potential of making mistakes as important steps toward understanding. A way to provoke effective thinking. Fail nine times. The next time you face a daunting challenge, think to yourself, in order for me to resolve this issue, I will have to fail nine times, but on the tenth attempt, I will be successful. This attitude frees you and allows you to think creatively without fear of failure because you understand that learning from failure is a forward step toward success. Take a risk, and when you fail, no longer think, oh no, what a frustrating waste of time and effort, but instead extract a new insight from that misstep and correctly think, great, one down, nine to go, I'm making forward progress, and indeed you are. After your first failure, think, terrific, I'm 10% done. Mistakes, loss, and failure are all flashing lights clearly pointing the way to deeper understanding and creative solutions. Illustration, the author's response. We see ourselves as teachers of effective thinking. As such, we are so committed to failure that we assess and reward it. In our classes, 5% of our students' course grades are based on their quality of failure. You want an A in our classes? You had better fail and fail productively. That is, learn through those failed efforts. Every mistake is a teacher and holds a lesson. When you are working on problems that have not yet been solved, there are no guarantees about how soon you will find answers. The unknown solutions may be miles and years away, or you might be surprised to find them tomorrow right around the corner. The moral of the story of this chapter is that mistakes are positive elements of quintessential thinking and failure is an important part of the foundation upon which to build success. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. Michael Jordan Once you're open to the positive potential of failure, failing productively involves two basic steps creating the mistake, and then exploiting the mistake. In this chapter, we encourage you to embrace several facets of failure that can lead to success. One method is to try your best to get it right and, if and when you fail, isolate the specific failed features of that attempt. Alternatively, deliberately try something that you know is wrong to identify and clarify specifically where the defects lie. Analyze each specific mistake to understand the reason it's wrong, thus gaining new insights and pointing you in the right direction. Finally, examine the mistakes to see if the failed attempt might be a correct solution to a different problem. 1. Welcome accidental missteps. Let your errors be your guide. A specific mistake is an excellent source of insight and direction because a mistake gives you something specific to think about. This attempt is wrong because blank. When you fill in the blank, you are forcing yourself to identify precisely what is wrong with your attempted solution. This process shifts the activity from trying to think of a correct solution, which you don't know at the moment, to the activity of correcting mistakes, which is often something you can do. Mary does mathematics. 
Mary was a first-year art and literature major in an honors program at the University of Texas. Much to her horror, the honors program had a mathematics requirement, and Mary was forced to enroll in a course appearing in the catalog as Modern Mathematics. She found herself in my, Starbird's, section of the class. Mary, along with many of her fellow students, was taking this class for one reason. She was forced to. She was truly excellent at many things, but she was not interested in math, and, in fact, she hated the subject. Not surprisingly, she was largely disengaged from the class discussions. She was going through the motions only to fulfill an unnecessary requirement, check it off her to-do list, and quickly move on. This attitude should never offend an instructor, because hopefully that instructor has his or her own goals for the class, in this case, not to create math converts, but instead for students to have an experience that could, in fact, transform their lives in a positive way, both in and beyond their formal education. This is Mary's story. One day, during a discussion about infinity, an abstract and counterintuitive subject that is challenging even for math majors, I posed a deep and subtle question. Given that math majors struggle with this issue, I knew that this question was beyond these students' reach, so I told the class that they would not be able to completely answer the question. Nevertheless, I wanted them to think about the issue as best they could. I instructed them to work in small groups to discuss the question and come up with some attempt at an answer. After about three minutes, I brought the small group discussions to a close and asked to hear their ideas. As a rule, instead of asking for volunteers, I cold call and pick my own volunteers, and on that day, I picked Mary. It was clear that Mary was uneasy to hear her name. When I asked her for her answer, she replied, I don't want to say it because I know it's wrong. I, trying to be encouraging and supportive, agreed with her. I'm sure it's wrong, but I still want to hear it. She then, reluctantly and with considerable annoyance, described her attempt. As she did, I wrote her solution on the blackboard. When she was through, I congratulated her. You're right. Your solution is wrong to which the entire class laughed and even Mary smiled momentarily. But I've already told you that no one would figure it out. Now, Mary, tell me just one thing that is wrong with your answer. Mary was able to quickly and clearly articulate something that was missing from her answer. I then prompted her by asking, Great! Now, how can you expand your incomplete solution to remove that specific defect you mentioned? In a perfect Jeopardy response, she asked, Couldn't we just and offered a small modification of her original attempt that fixed the particular defect she had detected. Great! Now, Mary, is this solution correct? To which she quickly answered, No. Great! So, Mary, tell me just one thing that is wrong with your current answer. She did. Great! Now fix your incomplete solution to remove as many defects as you can find. Adapting the method that fixed the first defect she quickly fixed several more and explained to the class her modified answer. Great! Now, Mary, is this solution correct? To which she triumphantly answered, Yes! But another student piped up and pointed out that there were still some omissions. To which Mary responded, Shoot! Or words to that effect. I said, Okay, continue on. Find an error and fix it. After five iterations of this process of finding an error and fixing it, Mary realized that she was getting closer and closer to a complete, correct answer. For the sixth time, I asked, Is this solution correct? With great confidence and pride, Mary answered, Yes, it is. And it was correct. Moreover, 
The solution she discovered was creatively different from the standard answer found in math textbooks, including the textbook that we had authored. Mary created her own ideas to answer the question. My entire contribution was to ask her to make a guess, ask if that guess was correct, ask for a specific defect of the attempt, ask her to fix that particular flaw, and repeat the process. As class led out that day, Mary approached me and told me that after our little back and forth exercise, her mind was reeling. She had a paper due in her English class that she was stuck on. Now she knew exactly what to do. She would just sit down and write a really bad draft, and then look for problems and fix them. There was a specific action she could definitely take. She could make a mistake. She felt liberated. Mary's story is thought-provoking. She had resolved a difficult issue that was, by all measures, well beyond her abilities. She used a technique of thinking that made her creative, effective, and successful. There is no vagueness or uncertainty about having solved this mathematical challenge. She definitely could not have done it without help, but the help was not mathematical. The help was entirely about how to engage her mind, and of course she could have used that exact same technique by simply giving herself the same prompts: make an attempt, find a flaw, fix it, make an attempt. She could have been her own teacher. Furthermore, she can apply that technique to anything she wishes. Mary's story illustrates one specific. Practical, broadly applicable strategy for effective thinking, learning, and creating. Successful students and famously successful people have used this strategy throughout history, and you can use it for your own benefit. Missteps in history. Why do speeches, music, art, architecture, software, books, and plays all require first drafts? Because it's not until Shakespeare reads his bad first draft that he will discover what's really rotten in the state of Denmark. The defects as well as the strengths of our first effort aren't available for us to examine until they exist. Making the errors overt makes the corrections overt as well. Moreover, drafts often contain unexpected strong features. Iteration allows us to see what's there and how we can improve, a little bit at a time. On December eight, nineteen forty-one. Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivered to Congress and the American people one of the most important speeches of his presidency. The first line of his oration was so powerful that many still remember his words. Yesterday, December seventh, nineteen forty-one, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Those perfectly chosen words did not arrive all at once. They evolved from an earlier typed draft, a draft that FDR himself edited in his own hand. That earlier opening line read, "Yesterday, December seven, nineteen forty-one, a date which will live in world history, the United States of America was simultaneously and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan without warning." Great speeches only become great after they had the opportunity first to be, well, not so great. A man's errors are his portals of discovery. James Joyce. First drafts are not just for writers. Thomas Edison was famous for his incremental approach to intentional invention: try something, see what's wrong, learn from the defect, try again. When he said that invention is one percent inspiration and ninety-nine percent perspiration, the perspiration was the process of incrementally making mistakes and learning from them to make the next attempts more apt to be closer to right. 
When Edison was asked how he felt about his countless failed attempts at making a light bulb, he replied, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Success is not about almost always succeeding. How would you feel if you were failing about 60% of the time? Sounds like a solid F. Well, in certain contexts, you'd be a superstar. A Major League Baseball player who fails 60% of the time, that is, who has a batting average of 400, would be phenomenal. No living player is that good. So in baseball, every player fails far more than half the time. In mathematical or scientific research, the batting averages are dramatically lower still. If scientists or mathematicians answer even one truly significant question in their whole life, they will be rightly regarded with great esteem. Success is about persisting through the process of repeatedly failing and learning from failure. The American Constitution has been a model for many governments around the world. But how many people remember that this was version 2.0 after the Founding Fathers first attempted government, namely the Articles of Confederation, failed? The Articles of Confederation represented an attempt to organize the newly independent American states. When the Articles of Confederation were written, the authors did not view that attempt as a temporary measure until something better came along. The authors were striving for a long-term government. However, the defects of the Articles of Confederation provided valuable insights that led to the Constitution of the United States. And, of course, even our treasured Constitution has amendments, each correcting a defect or adding an improvement. Creating a solution and then identifying its limitations leads to further refined solutions. The way to get good ideas is to get lots of ideas and throw the bad ones away. Linus Pauling You may not know how to do it right, but you can certainly do it wrong. A good way to generate useful mistakes is simply to tackle the issue at hand by quickly constructing the best solution you can with little or no effort. Like magic, suddenly many useful errors will appear out of thin air. Here's a practical means by which to create ideas. A way to provoke effective thinking. Don't stare at a blank screen. Take an issue or problem you are facing. For example, you may want to get organized or write a business plan or improve a course grade or write a paper or get more out of life. Open up a blank document on your computer. Now just quickly type any ideas, good, bad, inaccurate, or vague, that you have about the issue. Don't hesitate to record ideas or phrases that you know are not quite right. No one, except you, is going to read what you write. Your ideas will be very bad in many ways. They'll be disorganized and jumbled. They will be inaccurate or simply wrong. They'll be impractical. They will be boring. They won't come close to resolving the issue. They won't be creative. Congratulations! Excellent start! You may not feel that writing down bad ideas is a worthwhile start, but one thing is certain. Writing down bad ideas is something anyone can do. Anyone at any time can write a truly awful letter, report, essay, or story. Anyone can write down specific approaches to a problem that don't work. That is not a challenge, but it's also not the end of the story. Now read what you wrote and focus on two features, what's right and what's wrong. When you just write down ideas without worrying about correctness, structure, or elegance, your thoughts about the subject often flow out freely and clearly. The ideas that you are trying to express are in you, so when you write without fretting the mistakes, the surprising reality is that you will often say what you really want to say. You will include partial truths as well as some unexpected gems. Now you have something to do. You can tease out the good elements. 
you might find particularly nice phrases or pieces of strong ideas. You might uncover a word that is suggestive of some unstated interesting notion. You might find that you have clarified for yourself the core of the idea that you want to express. Looking for good features in your bad first attempt is a great first step towards some creative, high-quality work. Next, see if you can recognize and exploit what's wrong. When something is bad, it's often easy to see what's wrong and identify mistakes. Now you have something to do. Correct the errors you see. You are no longer staring at a blank computer screen hoping for perfection to magically materialize. You have created ideas and put them out where you can see them. You have traded in the impossible task of creating something that's perfect for the much easier task of mining gems and correcting errors. You are now doing something different. You are not creating a work on a blank canvas, but instead you are responding to a work already there. Your responses, in turn, will lead to new good ideas that you could not have created before you made the requisite mistakes. In making this action item practical, it is important to give yourself enough time for the required iterations. Thus, you must commit to starting your effort, that is, creating a crummy draft or first attempt, far enough in advance to allow the necessary gestation and iteration that leads to a polished work of which you will be proud. So start early. Illustration. This audiobook. You're listening to the result of many applications of this exercise. In my, Burgers, sophomore year at Connecticut College, I experienced a profound exercise in an introduction to philosophy class taught by Professor Rice. In the middle of the semester, Rice gave the instructions for the midterm paper. We were to write an essay not to exceed five pages with no other specific instructions except the title of the paper itself. Our title was to be My View of the World. This was a daunting but terrific exercise in taking all the great ancient philosophers we had studied thus far and filtering their ideas through our minds. Then, as the end of this term was looming, Professor Rice gave us the instructions for the final ten-page paper. Again, he simply gave us its title, My View of the World. That opportunity to revisit my own ideas from two months earlier and see how my mind had changed was a powerful exercise that remains with me as an important lesson. In fact, I incorporate this profound idea in my own classes on mathematics by asking students to regularly revisit concepts they previously considered. Create such opportunities for yourself, whether you're a student or not. Allow work to grow and evolve through iteratively identifying and improving on previous drafts and missteps. Give credit to failure. Instructors need to celebrate students' useful missteps because those failed attempts lead to important epiphanies at the end. For example, if an instructor gives a cumulative final examination, then why not allow that grade to replace a midterm exam if the score on the final is higher? Why are we punishing students for their intermediate missteps that are, in fact, essential for the learning process? And why not embrace a similar mindset in the business world? If at first you do succeed, try, try again, until you finally fail. In our own classes, we often intentionally solicit student mistakes. First, we ask our students to present their solutions to the entire class. If a student presents a correct solution, we will sometimes ask for another volunteer to present an erroneous solution to the same challenge, so the class can explore the reasons behind that defect. Understanding what doesn't work and why is valuable knowledge. This procedure validates the importance and positive value of making mistakes as a means of moving forward toward a deeper understanding of a body of knowledge. Students need to learn and grow from their intermediate failures. 
If a student does poorly on an assignment, then tossing it into the back of a notebook never to see the light of day again is foolish failure. This student has been given a great gift, the gift of being told what is wrong. Now it is the student's responsibility, if that individual is interested in truly succeeding, to make that wrong a right. How? By revisiting, right then and there, not the day before the test, those ideas that are not yet rock solid. Students often say, I got an 80% on this homework, that's good enough and I'm moving on. Bad idea. By not exploiting this great opportunity to learn from their mistakes, they're essentially throwing away, on average, 20% of their grade on the next exam before they've even taken it, and they're building future work on a cracked foundation. Why not learn from your current missteps today and give yourself a 20% bonus in your future? Mistakes present a great opportunity to learn and improve, but action is required. The wise instructor, or organizational leader, will clearly make it worthwhile for a student, or member of the group, right then and there, to learn from the mistakes. To make failure a positive step toward success, you need to revise your work, try again, try more, and seek help until you've completely understood the defects in your mistakes. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Samuel Beckett 2. Finding the right question to the wrong answer Sometimes when your attempt fails to resolve one issue, you might discover that you have actually found an imaginative answer to a totally different question. That is, your bad solution to one problem might lead to a totally different project altogether, a project suggested by the accidental virtues of your mostly bad attempt. Junk Bonds At 3M Research Laboratories, if someone says scotch, co-workers think transparent tape rather than adult beverage, and for good reason. 3M is one of the leading manufacturers of all that is sticky. In 1970, 3M scientist Spencer Silver was working hard to create an even stronger adhesive. His creation was a resounding failure. In fact, the bond was actually weaker than other 3M products of the day. It was so weak, it could be stuck to objects and then easily lifted off them without a trace. Oh well, Silver did not come unglued by his failed attempt, and 3M did not fire him. Wise move since four years later when 3M scientist Arthur Fry was trying to devise a way of placing bookmarks in his hymnal so they would neither fall out nor damage the pages, he recalled his colleague's weak mixture. Fry coated part of his bookmarks with Silver's super-weak adhesive and thus accidentally gave birth to one of 3M's most lucrative products, the Post-it Note. It all arose out of a failed attempt. Seeing a mistake as possibly a correct answer to a different question puts our thinking on its head. We look at a mistake not as a wrong answer, but instead as an opportunity to ask, what is the question to which this is a correct answer? Two reactions to mistakes. So when you see or make a mistake, you have at least two actions to take. One, let the mistake lead you to a better attempt, and or two, ask whether the mistake is a correct answer to a different question. A way to provoke effective thinking. Have a bad day. Bad days happen to good people. What separates the good from the great is how we react to that bad day. Bad days often include uncomfortably clear lessons about how to grow, learn, or reassess. So the next time you're having a bad day, make the conscious effort to find and extract positive lessons from those not-so-positive experiences. Illustration. Have a merry day. 
Was Mary's day in her math class a good day or a bad one? On first blush, it seemed not to be going well. The class was discussing infinity, which is scary enough. But then she was called out to share her thinking. That thinking was not perfect. However, by embracing her weaknesses as a way to reflect and learn, she grew. By the end of the class, Mary created something new and learned an important lesson about how to create ideas in the future. She had a bad day, and by taking advantage of it, made it a great one. Three, failing by intent, going to the extreme. Now we take the act of failing to its extreme. One profound way to make new discoveries is to intentionally fail along the way. Deliberately exaggerating or considering extreme, impractical scenarios often frees us to have an otherwise unforeseen insight. For example, manufacturers conduct stress tests to the point of breaking a product. Studying when and how the product fails provides valuable information into its relative strengths and weaknesses. Here is an example inspired by a middle school teacher. She was asked how she would teach some ideas of geometry if she had no constraints at all. That is. Suppose she had unlimited resources and plenty of time and support. Her response was that she would take her entire class to the Eiffel Tower and measure its height using angles to illustrate the importance of similar triangles. Taking her class to Paris is totally ridiculous and out of the question. However, her solution, which she knew was impractical, actually leads directly to a very important epiphany: namely, why not leave the classroom? Take the students outside so that they realize that mathematics is about the world around them. It is not just something you do inside the confines of the textbook. This important insight came from a solution that the teacher knew was impractical when she offered it. In business, you could ask what you would do if there were no budgetary constraints whatsoever. Maybe some aspects of those unrealistic solutions will point the way toward a practical solution that you otherwise would never have even considered. Have you ever tried to solve one of those challenging metal tavern puzzles in which you must get one piece disentangled from the rest of the puzzle? One effective method for making progress is to pretend the puzzle is completely elastic. Then you can usually imagine rather easily how to disentangle the pieces. But having learned the steps required to solve the rubber version of the puzzle, you can see what needs to be done with the rigid pieces to accomplish the same outcome. Solving the much easier but clearly unrealistic puzzle. Has transformed the difficult challenge into two conceptual steps: how to solve the easier rubber version of the puzzle, and then how to translate each of those steps to the unbending metal pieces. Some artistic movements, such as minimalism, were iconic examples of artists exaggerating a feature to extremes. Some viewers might look upon the results as mistakes, although the artists might view the results as plumbing the depths of artistic expression. Either way. Exploring extremes is illuminating. An effective strategy for gaining insight is to exaggerate conditions either through a physical or thought experiment. A way to provoke effective thinking: exaggerate to generate errors. Consider an issue or problem and now exaggerate some feature of it to a ridiculous extreme. For example, take a political, personal, business, academic. Or other issue, and create an extremely exaggerated perspective on the subject. If you are arguing one side of an issue, whether or not it is the side you truly believe, make the argument so exaggerated that you realize that it's way over the top. Now study your exaggerated description and discover some underlying defect. Does that defect persist in your original non-exaggerated perspective?
you might apply this exercise to such things as organizational structures or sports or any other activity or belief. Like a stress test, you might well apply this exercise to something that works well and learn how it breaks down. For example, large companies hire hackers to attempt to break into their computer systems to expose security weaknesses. Alternatively, try exaggerating a character, fictional or historical, or circumstance far beyond what you think a reader would tolerate. When you read it, you might discover that vast exaggeration is closer to what you want than you possibly would have guessed. But in any case, the exaggeration might give you a new insight into the role of the character or circumstance in your own mind. The strategy of exaggeration to extremes can be applied to any issue from writing to marketing to product development to politics. You might perform this exercise physically or metaphorically depending on the issue. Illustrations 1. In Business Jones & Sons lawn care business is failing due to the success of its main competitor, Green Thumb Cutters. The ridiculous extreme fantasy is to have the competition disappear. How can that silly fantasy help Jones & Sons? One way to make that green thumb go away is to acquire it and thus remove it as a competitor. Alternatively, one could make a competitor disappear by creating products or services that complement the other business. That is, rather than compete with the prosperous company, consider ways of sharing in its success. For example, Jones & Sons could lease and maintain lawnmowers for green thumb. 2. In school Suppose a student's tendency is to cram and begin working on homework assignments at the last minute. An extreme stance would be to imagine starting assignments at the first minute, that is, at the moment it is assigned. While this proposal may not be practical, it does lead us to an important insight. When you complete an assignment impacts what you can gain from that exercise. A student gets more out of completing homework earlier than later, even if the time spent in each case is the same. Learning from others' missteps. Often we don't have to be the ones to actually make the mistake. We all know that some of our greatest lessons were learned from some of the worst people. When we see an evil or inept person in action, or we see a good or competent person make a huge blunder, we find it easy to recognize the pitfall and consciously turn that moment into a learning opportunity. 4. Final Thoughts. A Modified Mindset. Mistakes and failure are not signs of weakness. Instead, they are opportunities for future success. Failure is a sign of a creative mind, of original thought and strength. In fact, at Williams College, one of the authors created a course entitled Exploring Creativity, in which students found themselves facing unfamiliar and uncomfortable intellectual challenges. To succeed in that course, Students were required to push themselves hard to take risks and create wildly without fear of failure. A person who is willing to fail is someone who is willing to step outside the box. Being willing to fail is a liberating attribute of transformative thinking. Failing is progress. It's not losing ground. Often a mistake or the revelation of error is the most important step toward success. A colossal error may be just millimeters away from a great insight. When you're stuck and you don't know what to do, don't do nothing. Instead, fail. Making a specific mistake puts you in a different and better position than you were in before you started. And it's a forward step you know you can actually take. A ship in port is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Admiral Grace Murray Hopper Let's be honest. Failure can be frightening and uncomfortable, 
a true trial by fire. Thus, we associate the strategy of failing to succeed with the element fire. Problems that require truly creative solutions are problems that you simply do not know how to solve yet. This audiobook is all about being successful, even if, and often because, you fail first. Air. 3. Creating questions out of thin air. Be your own Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates. Many people view questions as irksome. They associate questions with being ignorant, being lost, or even worse, being tested. But here, we suggest a different perspective and show that questions can be an inspiring guide to insight and understanding. In fact, the very act of creating questions for yourself is a profound step toward understanding, even if the questions are neither asked nor answered. Socrates is perhaps the most famous philosopher in human history because of his method of generating ideas. He challenged his students, friends, and even enemies to make new discoveries by asking them uncomfortable core questions. You would certainly be astonishingly successful if you had your very own personal Socrates with you at all times, prodding you with the right leading questions. In fact, such a 24-7 Socrates is possible, because you can generate your own questions that challenge your own assumptions and lead to insights. You can become your own Socrates. Wisdom just for the asking. Traditionally, people believe that it's in the answering of questions that progress is made. In fact, creating questions is as important, if not more important, than answering them, because framing good questions focuses your attention on the right issues. Remember how Mary, from the previous chapter, devised an original answer to a question about infinity by not only making mistakes, but by repeatedly considering the basic questions. Is your solution correct? And how can you improve your solution? Two questions that Mary could have easily raised on her own. Constantly formulating and raising questions is a mind-opening habit that forces you to have a deeper engagement with the world and a different inner experience. Asking yourself challenging questions can help you reveal hidden assumptions, avoid bias, expose vagueness, identify errors, and consider alternatives. Generating questions can help direct your next steps toward deeper understanding and creative problem-solving. 1. How Answers Can Lead to Questions Every scenario and circumstance can provoke an endless list of valuable questions. Asking questions should not be reserved for moments when you don't know an answer. Even when you do know the answer, asking, what if, is a great way to see more and delve deeper. If you gained nothing else from your formal education but the mindset of always asking, what if, then you would have benefited tremendously from your schooling. What if questions invite you to see the world differently because those questions force you to challenge the status quo and to explore the limits of your understanding. The habit of framing questions helps you see what's missing and thus see what needs creating. A Tragic Challenge On January 28, 1986, there was a catastrophic failure during the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger that resulted in an explosive disaster. There was a subsequent probe a probe, as a topical aside, means learning by questioning, by a presidential commission whose members included the famous theoretical physicist Richard Feynman from Caltech. One of the key facts of the disaster was the unusually low air temperature the night before the launch. In the videos of the launch, moments before liftoff, there appeared a slight misalignment between two parts of the solid rocket booster. 
This observation moved the investigation to the O-ring seals used between the segments of the boosters. These engineering issues are extremely complex and involve chemistry, physics, and mechanics. But Dr. Feynman cut right to the heart of the issue by just asking, what if we just test the elasticity of a cooled O-ring? In fact, he conducted a simple demonstration live on the televised broadcast of the investigation. He took out one of NASA's O-rings, clamped it down with a little C-clamp, and submerged it in a paper cup filled with ice water. When he removed the C-clamp, the entire coast-to-coast -coast audience could see that the cold rubber did not return to its previous round shape. The miserable mystery was solved. Confident leaders in every profession are not afraid to ask the stupid questions. Stupid, of course, is not the appropriate adjective for these questions. We actually mean basic questions. The questions to which you may feel embarrassed about not already knowing the answers. A transformative but challenging personal policy is to never pretend to know more than you do. Don't build on ambiguity and ignorance. When you don't know something, admit it as quickly as possible and immediately take action. Ask a question. If you have forgotten who the governor is, or how many hydrogen atoms are in a molecule of water, H2O, or what 7 times 8 is, just make a joke about yourself or quietly ask a friend. But one way or the other, quit hiding and take action. Paradoxically, when you ask basic questions, you will more than likely be perceived by others to be smarter. And more importantly, you'll end up knowing far more over your lifetime. This approach will cause you to be more successful than you would have been had you employed the common practice of pretending to know more than you do. Effective teachers encourage, invite, and even force their students to ask those fundamental questions. Insightful questions, such as, what happens if we put a clamped O-ring in a cup of ice water, can change the world. Overcoming bias. Do you remember that shadows are the color of the sky? That counterintuitive reality reminds us that preconceived notions, bias, and prejudice color our view of the world. One profound habit of thinking individuals is to first acknowledge their biases and then intentionally overcome them. Asking challenging questions can help. Passionately argue an issue from the opposite point of view and ask probing and difficult questions that challenge your original stance. Be brutally honest and see what's actually there rather than what's expected. Get in the habit of asking, do I really know, and refuse to accept assertions blindly. Challenge everything and everyone, including your teachers. Don't be intimidated. You are the best authority on what you don't understand. Trust yourself. Don't be afraid to ask the questions you need to ask, and be brave enough to change your thinking when you uncover a blind spot. Take another look. Get in the habit of asking how the issue looks from various viewpoints. Frame questions in different ways. Alternative perspectives lead to new sights and new insights. With mathematical questions, you can think about the issues numerically, graphically, algebraically, or physically. With social issues, you can think of them economically, globally, locally, and historically. Moreover, we can investigate issues from an evolutionary point of view and ask what is causing change. How have those influences caused change over time? and how will they cause change in the future. Try to bridge ideas from one discipline or area to another. Ask whether the skills, attitudes, techniques from one subject might be applied to another subject and to your work or life. In our experience, the students who embraced this mindset have far outperformed, not just in their classes, but in their lives beyond school, those who dismissed this point of view.
Everything fits together and interacts. Take the transformative step of asking how. If an exam is looming in your future, write the actual test itself. Well beforehand, compose a list of good exam questions, put it away for a few days, and then later dig it out and take that mock test. Contemplating questions that you think should appear on the test will force you to ask, what are the central ideas here, and do I truly understand them? And metaphorically write your own exam in other circumstances in which you are sharing information or skills, such as in preparing for an interview or a presentation. This create-a-test exercise is an excellent one to employ before you face an audience for a Q&A session. Do you know the material so well that you know what the good questions are? If you don't, then you do not understand the material well enough and you need to go deeper. The questions will help you both uncover weak points as well as place what you are saying into a larger context. Remember, if you can't create the questions, you're not ready for the test. A way to provoke effective thinking. Teach to learn. Consider an idea or topic you are trying to better understand and create a list of fundamental questions that will guide you to a complete explanation, including motivation, examples, overview, and details of that subject. With those questions and their corresponding answers in hand, prepare a mini-lecture and even consider delivering it to some audience, family, friends, or even a teacher. Ask them questions to measure how well you understood and articulated your message. Illustration Question Mark Mark is an extremely successful high school mathematics teacher. When we asked him when he really learned calculus, he said, When I first taught it. There is no better way to learn anything than to actually teach it. When I teach something, I have to confront many fundamental questions. What is the motivation to learn this topic? What are the basic examples? On what aspects of this material should I focus? What are the underlying themes? What ties the ideas together? What is the global structure? What are the important details? These questions force me to discover the heart of the matter and see exactly what I truly understand and what I still need to work on. In the Fatigues episode of Seinfeld, George has to address the business executives in the Yankees organization on risk management, but he is unable to motivate himself to read a book on the subject. After several funny failed attempts, he enlists the help of an unsuspecting young protege, Abby, who looks to George as a mentor. Abby, and you're sure with your busy schedule you'd have time to take on a protege? George, I'll make time, because Abby, I was once like you, wide-eyed, naive, I didn't know the first thing about a subject as fundamental as risk management. Abby, I'm not familiar with that. You'll have to explain it to me. George, I'll tell you what. Why don't you read this book and let's just see if you can explain it to me. Abby, all right. By the end of the episode, who do you think learned the basics of risk management? Is the standard preparation really preparing you? In most mathematics classes, the only opportunity for students to practice the ideas and techniques at hand is through regularly assigned homework. Students often leisurely pursue these exercises at night in their rooms while lying on their beds, listening to their iPods, and text messaging their friends. Somehow, over the course of the evening, the assignment is completed. But how are the major assessments conducted? By a couple of pressure-packed, timed exams in which students are placed in a sterile classroom sitting in tiny seats surrounded by other equally anxious students. While we, the authors, question the true educational value of such academic sprinting, this mode of assessment remains prevalent. So the question is, 
When do we teach students how to perform well under such time pressure? The answer is never. No wonder so many people have math phobia. To prepare students effectively, instructors should teach students how to perform under the same conditions that exist when the major assessment occurs. For example, teachers could give pressure-packed 60-second in-class exercises in which students are to work fast while the teacher yells at them to work faster. These seemingly harsh episodes actually would give students experience in focusing, not being distracted, and engaging with the material quickly and accurately. When the actual tests roll around, students would not crumble under any intense pressure. As a student, challenge yourself to attempt homework as quickly as possible. Consider the question, how fast can I do this assignment? How much can I get done in 30 minutes, even if at the moment I can't get it all right? You are now practicing for the big exam, and you can always go back and correct any errors you might have made during that lightning round. So in preparing for anything, ask yourself, what can I do on a day-to-day -day basis to help me perform well when it counts? 2. Creating questions enlivens your curiosity. A questionable habit. If you want to get more out of what you hear or see, force yourself to ask questions in a lecture, at a meeting, while listening to music, watching TV, or viewing art. People who ask lots of probing questions outperform those who don't engage with the ideas. Constantly generate questions and then ask them. That mindset will lead to a richer appreciation of the issues at hand. For teachers and managers, instead of asking, are there any questions? Assume there are and say, talk to your neighbor for 60 seconds and write down two questions. Then randomly call on pairs to read their questions. That is, instead of asking if there are questions, tell them that they are to create questions an important habit to develop for lifelong learning and curiosity. Whether or not you are asked to write down questions, constantly come up with questions on your own. Of course, actually asking the questions you create is also an excellent exercise. It allows for further clarity, and it shows the presenter you're genuinely thinking about the material. But even if you would rather not raise those questions, just the act of creating them adds tremendous value. Writing your own test before an exam, quiz, midterm, or final is a good idea, but don't wait. Every day, put yourself in the position of an evaluator and create your own test for everything you hear, see, or read. Ask yourself, what would someone ask me in order to determine whether I really understand these ideas? Be thought-provoking. Getting in the habit of asking questions will transform you into an active, rather than passive, listener. This practice forces you to have a different inner life experience, since you will, in fact, be listening more effectively. You know that sometimes when you are supposed to be listening to someone or reading something, that your mind starts to wander. All teachers and parents know that this happens frequently with students in classes. It's what goes on inside your head that makes all the difference in how well you will convert what you hear into something you learn. Listening is not enough. If you are constantly engaged in asking yourself questions about what you are hearing, you will find that even boring lecturers become a bit more interesting because much of the interest will be coming from what you are generating rather than what the lecturer is offering. When someone else speaks, you need to be thought-provoking. Be an official questioner. Every day in each of my classes, I, Berger, randomly select two students who are given the title of official questioners. These students are assigned the responsibility to pose at least one question during that class. 
After being the official questioner one day early in the term at Baylor University, one of my students, Carrie, visited me in my office. Just to break the ice, I leaned back in my chair and asked in a light-hearted way, Did you feel honored to be named one of the first official questioners of the semester? Much to my surprise, she assumed a serious and pensive tone and confessed that she was extremely nervous when I appointed her at the beginning of class. But then, during that class, she felt differently from how she felt during other lectures. It was a lecture just like the others, but this time she said she was forced to have a higher level of consciousness. She was more alive, more aware of what went on, and more attuned to the subtler content of the discussion. She also admitted that as a result she got more out of that class. Carrie's role as official questioner made her experience the mental activity that is required in each class by every student who wishes to succeed, understand, and ace the course. She not only asked a question that day, but she became a regular question poser and added a great amount, not only to her own understanding, but also to the class discussions. Carrie actually changed how she learned in a classroom environment and how she listened every day of her life. The sense of personal responsibility to understand what is being said as it happens in real time and to actively construct well-founded questions about what is missing, what is assumed, what might be extended, or what is vague or unclear is a habit of mind that can be learned with practice. If you embrace this mindset, forcing yourself to create and ask questions when you are listening to a lecture or anything else, you will find there are at least two effects. One, you will perform better, and two, you will find the world more engaging. 3. What's the real question? Sadly, many people spend their entire lives focusing on the wrong questions. They may pursue money when they really want happiness. They may pursue the respect of people whose favor is really not worthy to be sought. So before you succumb to the temptation of immediately springing to work on the answer, always stop and first ask, what's the real question here? Often the question that seems obvious may not be the question that leads to effective action. Personal questions such as, how can I be successful? Or, how can I ace my midterm? Or societal questions such as, why do African Americans underperform on math tests? Are important, but they're not effective questions. Effective questions turn your mind in directions that lead to new insights and solutions. They highlight hidden assumptions and indicate directions to take to make progress. So what's wrong with the previous three questions, and how might we fix them? How can I be successful is vague, and until you first carefully define successful, it is unanswerable. You should first ask what success means for you, and then pose questions that lead to action. When you ask about success, are you really asking about making money? If so, are you making a hidden assumption? Is a Wall Street banker who is fabulously wealthy but unhappy successful? Is an artist who lives in poverty, never sells a painting but loves his art, successful? You must define success for yourself. Only then will you be able to ask the right questions about how you can be successful. The effective questions you will ask about success will lead you to explore and develop core values, habits, and skills that will make a difference. Effective questions lead to action and are not vague. How can I ace my midterm? If you're a student, you are naturally concerned with how you perform on examinations. But ironically, focusing on the impending test itself is not the best way to improve your performance on that exam. Suppose in a few months you were going to be asked to do 30 push-ups. 
You could concentrate on what to eat the day before the push-up competition and what shirt to wear that's not too tight or too loose and how to give 110% at the time of the challenge. Or you could slowly, over time, increase the number of push-ups you can do each day between now and the big day so that it would be no effort to pump out 30 push-ups at test time. How can I do my best on the exam is not the best question to ask in school. Better questions include, how can I become more engaged in the course material? Could I give a lecture explaining the material? Could I write a detailed outline for this course? These questions lead to actions that you can take, becoming an active listener, joining a study group, or even better, tutoring others. The right questions clarify your understanding and focus your attention on features that matter. Why do African Americans underperform on math tests? Billions of dollars and much frustrating effort are spent trying to answer such questions. But it's the wrong question. The question draws our attention to the wrong variable, namely race, rather than the variables that actually impact the performance of any student of any race. Pertinent variables might include teaching methods, the amount of constructive help and resources a student receives, the level of encouragement and motivation, study habits and attitudes, time on task, feeling of belonging and confidence during instruction, and the student's history of success or failure. Questions concerning these themes and their relationship to any student's success direct our attention in constructive ways. They point our minds toward features of reality that may have an impact on individual student performance and that can possibly lead to useful interventions directed not at racially profiled populations, but at underperforming populations that include students of all races and ethnicity. Effective questions expose the real issue. Seeking the right question forces you to realize that there are at least two kinds of ignorance, cases in which you know the right question but not the answer, and cases in which you don't even know which question to ask. A way to provoke effective thinking. Improve the question. From the student's point of view, the question how can I get better grades, is not the most effective question to lead to a higher GPA. Questions such as, how can I learn to think better and understand more deeply? How can I learn to communicate better? How can I increase my curiosity? Are far more constructive questions. For the questions below that are relevant to you, and more importantly for the questions you will create, craft more focused questions that might lead to a productive conclusion. Try to create questions that expose hidden assumptions, clarify issues, and lead to action. How can I better manage my time? How can I land that dream job within the next four years? How can I attract this potential client? How can I quit a bad habit? How can I get my students to perform better? Apply this exercise whenever you are confronted with a question in your own life. That is, constantly question your own questions. Illustration. Traffic. While frustrated in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic that is moving at a painfully slow crawl, you wonder, perhaps in more colorful language, how can this traffic problem be fixed? The answers are easy, but not practical. Increase the flow by widening the roads or constructing additional highways. But the reality is that unless you're the president or governor, you cannot make either solution happen. Thus, the frustration builds along with your blood pressure. Your question was not a great one. Instead, ask, Given that I will spend an extra 40 minutes in traffic, how can I use that time effectively? Now you're asking a question that is productive. You might consider books on tape to relax or learn, or language tapes to improve your Greek, 
or visits with distant family and friends via Bluetooth. The right questions in the classroom. When a teacher gives an assignment, that instructor has the pedagogical responsibility to ask, what beneficial change will this exercise help foster or develop in my students? And afterward, what permanent lessons have these activities advanced? If you are a student, it is crucial to ask the corresponding questions. What beneficial change could this assignment offer me? What permanent benefit am I supposed to get out of this exercise? Did I get it? In our experience, the people who ask and act on these questions are more successful than those who don't. For example, realize that every time you write anything, you can harness that moment as an opportunity to improve your communication and argumentation skills, which can help you literally every day at home, at work, and in the world. Teachers should craft assignments that promote long-term goals, such as communicating and thinking more effectively. By asking questions about goals, you are better able to extract the advantages from assignments rather than mindlessly checking them off your to-do list. Remember to always question the questions. A way to provoke effective thinking. Ask meta-questions. Whether in the classroom, the boardroom, or the living room, asking questions about an assignment or project before beginning work in earnest will always lead to a stronger final product. Ask, what's the goal of this task? And, what benefit flows from the task? Keep that benefit in mind as you move forward. A byproduct of this exercise is that it often saves time because it focuses your attention on the core issues and allows you to quickly clear up the initial confusion that always is present at the start of any project or task. Illustration. Bare Essentials. A classic joke illustrates the importance of focusing on the right question. Two men are walking in the woods. A ferocious grizzly bear charges at them, and they start to run. While running, they shout, Man 1. We'll never outrun the bear. Man 2. I don't have to. My only question is, can I outrun you? Man 2 has identified the right question. There is nothing so useless as doing efficiently that which should not be done at all. Peter Drucker Teachers often misunderstand their role in enabling their students to learn. It's tempting to view the good teacher's job as chewing up the knowledge into small enough morsels that the students can swallow. But the real goal is for students to develop skills and attitudes that will allow them to independently think through the complications of life and find ways to learn for themselves. So the teacher may be asking the wrong question when he or she asks, how can I make this difficult material easier for my students? Frequently, students are told explicitly or implicitly that the goal of school is to make good grades and earn a diploma. Those are not worthy goals of education. What should be the goals of education beyond a GPA and a sheepskin? Ideally, the goal of education should be to develop critical thinking and communication skills and other such mind-strengthening abilities. If the teachers, the students, and the broader community are clear about the appropriate goals for education, the daily experience of students changes for the better. 4. Final Thoughts The Art of Creating Questions and Active Listening The right questions can be incredibly powerful tools for understanding and learning. Great questions can lead to insights that will make a difference. You can create great questions using concrete and straightforward techniques. Questions that guide you and arouse your curiosity. Questions give us a breath of inspiration and insight. Thus, we associate the art of questioning with the element air. Constantly thinking of questions is a mindset with tremendous impact. You become more alive and curious 
because you are actively engaged while you are listening and living. You become more open to ideas because you are constantly discovering places where your assumptions are exposed. You take more effective action because you clarify what needs to be done. Be your own Socrates. Water. Four. Seeing the flow of ideas. Look back. Look forward. To improve the golden moment of opportunity and catch the good that is within our reach is the great art of life. Samuel Johnson. An illuminated light bulb is the iconic metaphor for a bright, original idea. But one part of the metaphor is simply wrong. The brightness of a light bulb occurs in a vacuum, whereas ideas never arise in an empty void. New ideas today are built on the ideas of yesterday and illuminate the way to the brilliant ideas of tomorrow. Inventors such as Alexander Graham Bell, artists such as Claude Monet, scientists such as Charles Darwin, writers such as J.K. Rowling. And business leaders such as Steve Jobs, who create innovations, recognize that each new idea extends a line that started in the past and travels through the present into the future. Successful and effective learners and innovators harness the power of the flow of ideas, which suggests the element water. There's always more. Every advance can be the launch pad to far greater advances yet to be discovered. An Apple computer built in a garage in the 1970s. Has evolved into its current state and will soon be unrecognizably more advanced in the future. Solutions to little problems generate solutions to great problems. History erased. Have you ever sat in a lecture totally lost or read some profound idea in a book and thought to yourself, "How did anyone ever come up with this stuff?" Great question. Unfortunately, origins of ideas are often covered up, giving the impression of magic, spontaneous creation rather than of incremental evolution. Which is a far more accurate description. Every great idea is a human idea that evolved from hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals struggling to make sense and understand the issue at hand. Thoughtful individuals moved the boundaries of our knowledge forward little by little, often by applying the elements of thinking that we've considered in the previous chapters, understanding deeply, failing, and asking questions. Every wandering step, every misstep. And every dead end provided a new insight that moved those struggling minds along the path of discovery. A way to provoke effective thinking. Iterate ideas. You don't need an army of thousands of individuals to struggle a thousand years to make sense of a challenge at hand. The only person who needs to move forward little by little is you. Engineer your own evolution. Take a homework assignment, paper, or project that you're facing, and quickly just do it. That is, tackle the questions, draft the paper, or move forward on the project at a fast forward speed that will surely generate a work that is, at best, subpar. Now consider that poor effort as your starting point, and react to that work and start to improve and iterate. The flow of iteration will lead to a refined final product. Notice how this flowing mindset perfectly coincides with the elements of failure we introduced earlier. Illustration. Rewriting in earnest. Ernest Hemingway was interviewed for an article entitled "The Art of Fiction," which appeared in the Paris Review in 1956. The interview revealed Hemingway as a person who practiced the technique of incremental progress. Interviewer, how much rewriting do you do? Hemingway, it depends. I rewrote the ending of A Farewell to Arms, the last page of it, 39 times before I was satisfied. Interviewer. Was there some technical problem there, 
What was it that had you stumped? Hemingway, getting the words right. To understand current ideas through flow, first find easier elements that lead to what you want to understand, and then build bridges from those easier elements to the ideas you wish to master. To generate new ideas through flow, first modify an existing idea within its own context, and then apply that same idea in different settings. Then you can construct extensions, refinements, and variations. One, understanding current ideas through the flow of ideas. To truly understand a concept, discover how it naturally evolves from simpler thoughts. Recognizing that the present reality is a moment in a continuing evolution makes your understanding fit into a more coherent structure. Turning the page on calculus. The whole history of mathematics is one long sequence of taking the best ideas of the moment and finding new extensions, variations, and applications. Our lives today are totally different from the lives of people 300 years ago, mostly owing to scientific and technological innovations that required the insights of calculus. Isaac Newton and Gottfried von Leibniz independently discovered calculus in the last half of the 17th century. But a study of the history reveals that mathematicians had thought of all the essential elements of calculus before either Newton or Leibniz came along. Newton himself acknowledged this flowing reality when he wrote, "If I have seen farther than others, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants." Newton and Leibniz came up with their brilliant insight at essentially the same time.